0: When you think about applying for a practice loan, do you think about speed and simplicity? Likely not. For many veterinarians, applying for business loans can be a long and fatiguing process. Luckily, the sponsor of the podcast, Provide Inc., has changed all that. Provide is a specialty lender to the veterinary industry. They're the only, and I mean only, fully online and digital lender in the veterinary space, which makes life easy. You know I go on and on, and I'm so pro-practice ownership. I could not be happier to have Provide be a sponsor. Whether you're in Maine or California, Provide can help. They aren't going to require you to open your savings account or jump through some hoops to get some sort of relationship discount on your loan. They're simply just going to say, here's our rate, this is the process, and we're going to do a good job. Provide uses innovative software and technology coupled with excellent service and an industry experience to deliver something that's just more efficient. Even on very complicated transactions, Provide can make a decision on whether they're going to lend in a mere five to seven business days. As we all know, time is money and having those answers quickly matters. Provide offers financing for practice acquisitions, buy-ins or buy-outs, commercial real estate, refinancing, practice remodels, all that stuff. Anything that you have around financing for your veterinary clinic and your business, they can help you with. So when you think about it, you can pre-qualify in minutes with no effect on your credit score. That's a benefit as well. For more information, head over to theveterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom. You'll see a hyperlink under the provide bio. That'll get you directly to where you can pre-qualify. You can do it on your couch. You can do it in 10 minutes or less. And if you do want to reach out directly to them, please let them know that I sent you. They'll take great care of you and they will be alongside you for one of the biggest purchases of your life and do a great job at it. Now let's get to the show. Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Melanie Bowden, who is a veterinarian speaker, author, and mentor living in Maine. She's passionate about a lot of different things, as we'll get into, but accessibility to care and quality medicine is one of them. Relationship-centered care for patients, owners, and the staff. Improving the profession through innovation, mentorship, and having a growth mindset. Again, we're going to come back to growth mindset, I think that's super interesting. She's likely best known for her TEDx talk, What Being a Veterinarian Really Takes?, which it's unbelievable. If you've not seen it, I'll link to it in the show notes. Definitely check it out. It's fantastic. I'm super excited for this conversation, but Dr. Bowden, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Isaiah. (laughs) Like we talked about right before hit record, you've had some other podcast conversations around the TEDx talk. And for those that haven't watched it, definitely go back and check it out. But I wanted to just jump right into what caught my attention, which was the new book that you have coming out. And it's called What the F is This, Vet Med: Hard (laughs) Lessons for a New Generation of Veterinary Professionals. You shared a really cool story with me that I'd like to bring up just to kick things off, which is the cover photo. Can you talk a little bit about the cover photo from
1: the book? Sure. So the cover photo is a picture of me. And it's probably, I think, my second year in practice. And it's right before I'm about to head into my very first splittectomy, which I was terrified to do. I had done a lot of research, I had a lot of book knowledge, I had a lot of education regarding it, but I didn't have experience and therefore lacked wisdom. And I was terrified. And so I decided to take a picture of myself in that moment, as a reminder of the positive things that can come out of stepping up for your patients and stepping up for your clients. And so the intensity of that photo is <laughs> very much because of the intensity of the moment for me. And it's something that helps remind me of to be brave and to be courageous because it's part of what makes you a good doctor if you do it in the right moments for the right reasons. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, I love that. And awesome picture that is super powerful. In again, another thing that you mentioned was talking about wanting to be a conversation starter, but also yeah. understand that like talk is cheap. So talking about providing solutions instead of just kind of glossing over and rehashing some of the same verbiage that's been out there with the book, can you share some of the different themes, solutions, ideas, concepts, and we'll get more into that, but just from a high level, what you're looking to accomplish?
1: Yeah, so I applaud and appreciate that veterinary medicine has taken a stronger stance on mental health awareness and talking about it more and normalizing conversations about it. But I haven't seen a whole lot come out about actually doing something about it. And I think that's hard because on an industry level, what works for one person may not work for another person. So it's hard to figure out from like an industry standpoint, like what should we be doing to help correct where we've gotten in veterinary medicine. I think my attempt with this book is it's called a mentoring novel for a reason. Each chapter has opportunities for reflection or small exercises. And it integrates this my story along with stories and interviews of my friends and colleagues in terms of how they've battled burnout or how their careers have developed in unpredictable ways. And also layers in some scientific-backed research around wellness strategies and goal setting and planning and how do we really take control of our careers and make work work for us, as opposed to just being a slave to what we show up to every day. And then from an industry perspective, it also talks a little bit about some of the things that I've experienced as a veterinarian that are seen as very much normal. And outside the context of veterinary medicine, pretty much every other industry thinks it's ludicrous. And so <laughs> there are some chapters on like how we're paid and compensated from a production standpoint versus salary, there's some information there on student debt and financial independence. And then there's some information there as well about the science of well-being and how do we tap into our positive happy hormones of norepinephrine and and dopamine and all of those. I've never been like a foo-foo-y kind of person who like, I always was like, oh, yoga, massages, like that's for relaxation and spa stuff. And now I'm like, no, there's good science behind that stuff. And it definitely helps. So anyways, there's hopefully a little bit of something in it for everybody.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I think obviously knowing your audience, bringing a little bit of scientific research and like clinical evidence, I think makes a ton of sense. And I look forward to check it out. And I think there's a lot of good stuff there, but going and thinking about just personal responsibility was something you brought up and I thought it was interesting because you explained the idea that looking at how veterinarians treat each other expectations and some of that can you unpack that because I thought I was like okay there's a little string here to pull on and that seems really interesting
1: yeah I think it is one of our industry challenges as part of our own internal culture and I recently did a post about this after we'd lost some colleagues uh, a couple weeks ago to suicide So I think my thing with personal responsibility, I kind of had an aha moment about it through my own kind of burnout experience. It's really easy to blame other people and sit in victimhood, which I think a lot of us tend to do as an initial reaction when we're stressed in our lives that things haven't gone well and it's not our fault. It's somebody else. And it's easy to blame our clients. It's easy to blame being understaffed. It's easy to blame that we don't have the resources we need or people don't have enough money. Like the list goes on and on and on because those stressors are there and they're real. The problem is, I can't do anything about that. I can't make my clients be nice. I can't make them have more money. I can't change the fact that someone called out sick. And so if you sit in that victimhood, it strips you of power to have a positive relationship with your work and to actually create positive change for yourself. And the thing that I found and part of my own burnout story was that I was hopping from practice to practice and practice. and finding the same bottlenecks everywhere. Like that's just the culture. That's just the environment of veterinary medicine that regardless of where you go, it's going to be there. And the only thing that was consistent there as well was myself. And I wasn't taking personal responsibility for the things that I could control in terms of running my schedule better, being proactive with setting expectations with my clients, how I dealt with and managed my own stress level, And those are things that I can completely control and things that really positively impacted my work-life balance moving forward. And I think the best example of this is that the place that I found the most happiness thus far in veterinary medicine has actually been working in an ER setting. And dollars to donuts, any veterinarian you talk to will tell you ER is way more stressful than GP because you have to know more on the spot with higher stakes in the moment and it's higher cost clients are more escalated in terms of emotions. And so from a stress standpoint, from all of those external factors, probably far more stressful than any GP I've ever worked in. From a happiness standpoint, it's the best I've ever been. And that has to do with the personal work that I've done and the responsibility I've taken to change how I interact as a doctor at work. And that was part of, and then part of it too, was purposely trying to find a clinic that kind of, Didn't do as much of the classic things I think are an issue in our industry. So the challenges that I brought up in the post were to stop being so competitive, like let's be collaborative as doctors. Let's not throw each other under the bus. Let's help each other on cases and not shame each other for not knowing or forgetting things because we need to have a growth mindset. We need to keep learning and changing and growing and being open. And if we're competitive, it shuts that down. Stop shaming others just because it's easy for you doesn't mean it's easy for somebody else. And people shouldn't feel embarrassed because they need to take a time out after euthanasia or a tough client conversation. And more than once, I've seen people crying on the middle of the floor because they haven't felt like they can step back. And then the third one that I talked about in that same post was stopping the guilt trip. Like we put a lot of guilt on other doctors that you're a bad doctor if you can't handle a caseload or having managers ask instead of taking PTO, could you please switch shifts with somebody because we can't afford to be short? Or I had a workplace injury recently and was asked to stay to the end of my shift before I sought care. So those types of things we can deal with as an industry and change the culture of what we ask of our doctors. But there's also things that you can do as an individual as well to change your stress level at work.
0: Do you have any favorite resources or I guess content that you consume around helping with personal responsibility and kind of framing or changing the way that you think about it? Anything that's top of mind?
1: Yes. Yeah, so there are two books in particular. The first one's actually called Growth Mindset. And it was something that I read in orientation at WSU. We all had to read it. It's a coaching book. And the author is Carol DeWitt, D-W-E-C-K. The other one I more, most recently came across is by Kathy Fox and it's called Work-Life Symbiosis. And actually the functional aspect of her book is part of what inspired me in the format of my book, but it's similar that it kind of talks about like, instead of work and life being balanced, how do you integrate the two? And has you go through exercises on prioritizing like what's important in your life and how you interact with it. So those two books in particular were kind of things that started that transition for me.
0: Absolutely. And thinking about just the skill set and the knowledge and the information that you get as you go through your education, it's you're obviously very well prepared from a clinical side to take care of pets and others, but maybe not as much yourself. Outside of the personal responsibility piece, is there other things that you've done personally that have helped you or thought about that have maybe changed, whether it's a routine, whether it's just self-talk, anything like that?
1: Yeah, so one of the things that I always say is I was really well educated in caring for animals, but I was not educated in caring for myself. And that even came from like a very young age. Like my family in general is very other centric, and my mom never took any time for herself. So it was never modeled for me that that was something that was okay to do. And I think I'm a very like analytical person. So I think about it from the work life integration standpoint. What are the things that need to go on my calendar first to keep me like a whole, happy, healthy human being? because if I'm not in that space, I can't be my best doctor, right? Like I can't be my best self at work. I can't support my team appropriately. I can't care for animals appropriately. So I kind of flipped it on the head for me of saying like, I have to take care of myself first. So I'm here still to see all these animals. Cause if I run myself ragged doing this day in and day out, eventually I'm going to quit and leave them. Profession, and so from a sustainability standpoint, if I'm trying to maximize the amount of people, amount of animals I can help in my lifetime, the better care I take for myself over time, the more people I can help. So for me, it includes hiking days. I'm a big backpacker. I like to hike with my dogs, and it's a good way for me to like just disconnect from everything. Like cell reception stinks, and you can't get phone calls, and I don't answer emails. So it's good for me as like a complete disconnection day. I also work out pretty religiously in the mornings now as a way to manage my anxiety because I used to have panic attacks all the time. And I had really bad gastric reflux for a while related to stress at work. And so exercise has been really helpful for me in that path. And then the other things from a mindfulness standpoint. So when I first started this pathway, I didn't really realize how negative I was to myself. Like I thought I had a Pretty good inner cheerleader. And then I started doing hot yoga. And you sit in the beginning of class and stare at yourself in the mirror. And I was super mean. I was like the worst eighth grade girl on the planet. Like, I was like realizing I was like sitting there being like, oh, like this looks awful. And like, how could you possibly have worn this today? And you totally messed up that thing earlier today. Like, the entire inner conversation was super toxic. And so it made me more aware that I needed to practice cultivating an inner cheerleader as opposed to an inner critic. And so to that effect, I've tried to do more mindfulness work and journaling to recognize those thoughts, appreciate them for what they are, and then let them go. And that's been helpful for me too, because I didn't realize one of my friends Lil Curtis posted the other day, did you really have a bad day or did you have a bad five minutes that ruined the rest of your day? And I was like, you're on it, girl. <laughs> like, cause that happens to all of us and it gets blown out of proportions.
0: Sure. Yeah. There's a lot of good stuff in there. I've done hot yoga once with my younger brother and I was like, holy cow, I haven't sweated like this in a long time.
1: Like (laughs) this is hard. (laughs) This is hard.
0: Yeah, I actually enjoyed it more than I would have thought. I have not gone back since, but it was enjoyable. Thinking about, you touched on it, choosing ER and doing some of the things you do from a clinical side. Experiences, things that you've seen. You are the only 24-hour clinic in the whole state. So you get a lot of interesting things, I would imagine, as far as Caseload, stress, all that stuff. But anything that sticks out as far as a story or experience recently?
1: I think one of the things that's been really eye opening to me working at like a, we would call it like a tertiary referral center. So meaning that we're the cases that if your GP hasn't figured it out and you've gotten a second opinion by somebody else, then you come to us. So like you're really hard to figure out. Um, <laughs> it's been eye opening to me in terms of how to better support other veterinarians and the relationship between referral centers and veterinary general practice. And I think part of that is, again, comes to back to that competition. I think there's sometimes a fear of referring your cases to a you know a specialist and you're like, oh, they're going to think I did a bad job. They're not going to understand the context. The client said no to this or that or the other thing, or I didn't think that they had the money. And I think that there's that fear again of like being judged and being wrong. And so one of the things that I've really tried to focus on in addition to seeing my actual patients and their owners as clients is also seeing the referring doctor as a client as well and trying to be useful to them and supportive to them in whatever way possible, whether that's helping them manage the case longer term once it goes back to their care or if there was something that, seemed like a fundamental mistake or lack of knowledge, you know, to reach out to them and in an open way, not in a judging way, but an open way, having conversation about that. So that next time, if you see something like this, this is what we'd recommend to do. And there's certainly a lot of people in the state of Maine, because Maine's a big state that can't either afford to come to our clinic or can't take the time off. I mean, some pets are traveling eight, 12 hours to come to us. And in those cases, a lot of time you're doing phone consults with doctors in their own practices. And I love that. I love helping talk other veterinarians through doing emergency procedures. I find it really rewarding. I think it's rewarding for them too, that they get to do something that they thought that they couldn't do and they get that boost of confidence and that kind of bravery. And in the end of the day, like we're all about saving pets and having pets stay alive. Right. And so it's really rewarding when I can help a clinician realize like, yes, you do have the capacity to do this where you are with what you have as a resource and here's how we're going to do it. And so that's been really rewarding too.
0: Yeah. I know one of the things at the top, as far as one of the areas that you think about, as far as a big goal is just the cost of care, right? And so that whole dynamic of where you work today and what you see and some of the stress that's there, can you talk about your thoughts on being able to provide more access to care, because there's all those studies that AVMA or others will do that huge percentage of pets don't get any sort of care.
1: Yeah, so part of it's just knowledge base of the client not knowing what care pets need, but then affordability becomes a huge problem too. Because in the human healthcare model, most people have health insurance through their work or through the government at this point, point. and so when you show up, you might have a twenty dollars copay, thirty dollars copay, but you have no idea how much that office visit just cost you and the diagnostics and everything else. And usually you're billed like months later, and then you're like, ouch, but it's so disconnected from the time of service that you don't really see it that way. And in veterinary medicine, it's money at time of service. And in ER, that becomes even more stressful because if you don't have money at time of service, it often means that your pet's gonna die because we can't treat it. Whereas in GP, it's like, well, I'd love to do preventative care blood work on this pet, but we can schedule that for six months from now and you can save for it. So I think it's been a, like an ethical challenge for me working at a tertiary referral center because we're definitely the most expensive place to get care. But I also feel like part of being a good veterinarian is creating options and opportunity for the clients. So I always recommend Gold Standard, but I definitely feel like there's a time and a place or cutting corners, if you want to call it that, or making like selective decisions based off of how the pet's doing about what do you do and what don't you do from a safety standpoint. And of course, always doing it with owner consent and with their knowledge about what risks you're taking. And so I think from that perspective, being able to offer clients middle pathways, I think is important. I think the other component too, is that veterinarians get stuck on what we were trained to do in school, which is often cure and completely fix disease there aren't very many veterinarians that ask the client, what is your goal today? What would be a positive outcome for you? Because we assume cure is what they want. Like they want me to figure out what's wrong and they want me to cure it. Whereas usually the pet owner's like, well, I just really want Fluffy to be comfortable or I really want Fluffy to be able to go for her walks again. Or like they have a very concrete specific goal about what quality of life looks like for that animal and it doesn't always involve cure. So if cure is off the table, Sometimes having that conversation with the client gets you to a pathway where everybody's happy and the pet's not suffering. But again, you recognize that maybe you have less time but you have good quality of life or whatever that trade off is. And then from an actual financial standpoint, I'm a huge proponent of educating clients about pet insurance. We use pet insurance a lot at our clinic. I've used COVID as a time to have a captive audience that's sitting out in their car waiting for me to call and I tell my technicians, "Give them the Trupanion pamphlet and they can look at it while I'm there." And then when I call and I talk to them about their pet, I'm like, "Hey, so have you looked at the Trupanion pamphlet? Like it's going to take me 45 minutes to run this blood work." why don't you give them a call? So not that I'm and I'm not sponsored by Trupanion or any other health insurance company, but it makes a huge difference. People that come in, especially to an ER center that have some sort of pet insurance for their pet, totally different conversation. I can focus on well-being a pet and medicine exclusively. Everybody else, 90% of my time is talking finances. That's just a challenging place to have to operate from. So I'm a huge proponent of that. And then I do think to the best of the ability of clinics, I've worked at many clinics that have some sort of angel fund or whatnot, and doing simple things like, do you want to round up to the next dollar as a donation for pets that may not be able to afford care at their next visit or whatever, things like that, I think are helpful. And there is also the AVMF, which is the American Veterinary Medicine Fund, and that's run through the AVMA. That if you don't want to manage your own 503c from a tax perspective, you can plug into theirs, and so they manage the what that looks like financially and liability wise for you. But I think we have to get creative because medicine's only going to get more expensive, and pets need care. And I don't think that veterinary access should become a class issue. I, I get that having a pet is a responsibility and a privilege, not a right, and you need to be prepared as a pet owner. But it's our job to educate pet owners on what that responsibility means. And if we're not talking about it during puppy and kitten exams, we're not providing access to those resources, then it's also a failure on us when that client comes in unprepared. So I think we need to talk about it like we talk about preventative care. We talk about preventative finances. How
0: has, from a communication standpoint, Mm -hmm. so as the non-veterinarian in this conversation, I hear a lot of what you just shared. And to me, it comes back to providing options and being able to articulate and explain the medical jargon and lingo, which again, for me, I don't know it, right? Like I need someone to dumb it down to make sure it makes sense for Isaiah. But how much has the communication skills that you have and being able to have those conversations changed or how do you view that as one of the skills that you have today? I mean, in talking, because it sounds like that's a huge part for most veterinarians to be able to explain this is why I'm doing something or here's option A, B, and C. And I like the idea that you said, and I don't think it's cutting corners. I think it's being realistic with what the situation is. If no care could be one of the options and we'll shoot, let's stay away from that. Let's try to at least get something done to make an improvement. So,
1: so communications training is not universal in veterinary medicine in school. I think it should be because it is seriously 75% of my job. So, so as a veterinarian, you diagnose, you prescribe, you do surgery, and you talk to clients. And all the other stuff like placing IV catheters and blood draws and all the technical skills that we think of in medicine are usually done by our skilled support staff, at least in a highly functioning clinic, that should be the way it is. So I spend most of my time on these days in COVID on the phone with clients, talking to them about what's going on with their pet and what their options are. And having good client communication skills is critical, one for avoiding conflict. So it's really easy to step in a mine and not realize that you did that just because of your word choice, potentially, like someone suddenly feels judged or they feel like you're not listening to them. And also from a standpoint of them truly understanding what's going on with their pet. And it's taken some courage for me to start asking some of those questions, but to stop people in the middle and just say like, it really seems like we're not on the same page here. Let me back up. I don't really think there's a point of doing X test if you're not willing to be all in and go for chemotherapy or whatever it is, right? Like we already know this is our baseline of where we're at with this case. So if you're not going to do the additional things on the other side of this, we don't really need that test or and just be really blunt and forward and straight about it. I think a lot of times we try to use euphemisms or we try to be a little wishy-washy because we think that's being kind, but I think it leads to confusion. And so in ER medicine, you also have to sometimes be more timely in your discussions and get people to the point more. And so I've gotten more comfortable over time being more direct and just saying things like, I don't want this to come off as a lack of empathy because i know this is challenging and i know that this is a very scary time for you however i need to know right now if your pet you know codes on me do you want me to resuscitate it because that's how sick he is i have to have those kinds of conversations on a daily basis so figuring out how to do that with compassion and while listening to their story and <laughs> you know everything else is a lot to handle and i think from that perspective communications training is really essential for veterinarians to reduce their stress at work. And I think a lot of the client conflict and the client stress and negative client interactions that happen could be greatly alleviated with more communications training for teams.
0: Yeah. So well put. What's something that I haven't asked about yet that you think is super important for someone listening to hear?
1: I think one of the biggest revelations to me was that there's way more out there than a traditional veterinary practice. Like I went through vet school thinking I was going to be a GP doctor who is going to then at some point own a practice and that would be the pathway because that's been the pathway for the last 50 years. Veterinary medicine's changing really rapidly. We're becoming more and more increasingly corporate. And for veterinarians who want to do more than just be an associate, we're starting to have to get more creative to continue to have those opportunities and outlets for entrepreneurialism. And so I would encourage people to, think when they think about work-life symbiosis and integration to really think outside of the box. Like I've worked relief for a while because that's what I needed for a work balance standpoint. I've worked ER, I've worked EP and life changes and the needs of your life change over time. So don't be afraid to try something new or talk to your friends about something that seems non-traditional because I think more and more that's becoming a pathway that brings people a lot of satisfaction.
0: And did you feel this way? that you were scared to leave or make an adjustment at one position because it, let's say it was good. It wasn't great. You weren't like totally satisfied. This wasn't like the end all be all perfect place, but it was good. And you've heard the horror stories that, that relationships that workplaces that are awful. Were you yeah. all making those changes? And how did you say, you know what? I can always find another job. Like, did you just try to get yourself like, again, inner cheerleader say, you got this, you can do it.
1: <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's hard. It's a change is scary for everybody humans thrive on consistency and predictability and security. So change is hard. Change is hard for everybody. But yeah, I would say that I waited too long because of a fear of change. I waited in the job that was the most destructive to my personal well-being and health. I sat in that place of this is fine. This is normal. Everybody experiences this. This is what veterinary medicine is like. You just have to deal with it. And rationalized what I was going through. I didn't really actually recognize fully how much it had impacted me in a negative way until I left because that is your normal. That is all you've ever experienced. But it does. Like we all have bills, we've got student loans, we've got homes that you own, you've got family that's relying on you. And so the financial insecurity of stepping away and trying something different is definitely scary. I will say, right now, at this point in time in 2021, veterinarians are in such high demand because of the change and increase in pet ownership, as well as the fact that we've just had a shortage. Um, So the first time in history, we're seeing an attrition rate for veterinary medicine where more veterinarians are leaving than coming in. And so I think from that perspective, there is some security that people can have in their minds of knowing that there's probably an opportunity out there for you. But I definitely spent a lot of time kind of thinking through that very thoughtfully and making sure that I had my ducks in a row before I stepped away.
0: Absolutely. And I think... In conversations that I've had, there's in the teens of clinics looking for the exact same associate. They're asking me, Who do you know? Who's Mm -hmm. looking? I'm like, I think everyone's looking for the same person right now. So, yeah, there definitely is high demand where you do have a lot more flexibility to kind of set how and what you want to do and what life looks like from a work perspective.
1: Yeah. And having the courage to negotiate and state what you need at the outset is important. And that was definitely something I did in my current position, was going into it saying, Hey, I want to make sure that I have. Time to be able to do backpacking without taking a bunch of PTO, or I have a minimum salary that I need to make finances work for me. And to go in with it with that mindset and kind of working from that place then forward, knowing kind of what I needed and making sure that the company knew that that's what I needed to be a successful long term employee. And that's part of what's made this job really successful.
0: Yeah, I think that's super advice. It's also great that you can uh, record a podcast with somebody on a Wednesday, right? Too. This is great. Right. So I close episodes and I don't know if I preemptively told you this or not, but I always ask guests if they have a question for me and it can be anything, personal, professional, off the wall, anything you want to know, curiosity, any questions that you can think of that you want to ask, go for it.
1: Yeah. So Isaiah, you're a pet owner, yes?
0: I actually am not. And I'm going to explain. I've never said this on the (laughs) podcast. So here is something new. I got a dog with a long-term serious girlfriend that Mm -hmm. we were going to get married, all that other stuff, right? Did not work out that way. When I met my wife, she's deathly allergic to animals. And so I lived with my best friend at the time and we had the dog together and it was me and my buddy. And he basically retained the dog because again, that was just what worked And He was like, yeah, I'll keep him. Like I'm attached to him at this point anyway. So hard. But if you go to the podcast website, there's a picture of an actual dog on the podcast website. That's Brody. That's the dog. And he lives in Atlanta now. So because my buddy moved when we got married. So I do not own a pet. <laughs> and that is why I would love to, and my wife would love to, if she didn't have to take two Zyrtec and pass out on the couch. So date right. whenever she'd come over, watch a movie, have dog on one side sleeping, her from taking some meds on the other side to sleep. And I'm like, it's 15 minutes in, I'm going to watch the movie myself. So this is great.
1: Uh, she really liked you. <laughs> yeah, she did. Yeah, Now
0: she's always like, do they have a dog? Do they have pets? I'm like, oh yeah, they do. Can you suck it up while we go over? <laughs> it's tough. But yeah, I've never mentioned that, which is funny, actually. So good question, but you were going to go with your question. I guess I interrupted you.
1: Well, I'm curious then why this has become an interest for you in terms of a podcast if you're not a pet owner.
0: Yes. So the interest from a high level is it was through a personal relationship and it was more on the dentistry side initially. I had a friend that went to the IU School of Dentistry, um, didn't come from much, very humble upbringings, had a lot of the same questions I think young veterinarians have. And basically, I was carving out at the time. I was at Merrill Lynch, and was, he was definitely not the ideal client with a ton of student loan debt and wasn't making any money yet. So I had to kind of battle through that. But I was trying to help him and figure out who could I surround him with to be successful. And through that, and building out those professional relationships, there was a lot of people that said, "Hey, we were also work with veterinarians. They're very similar to dentistry. Would you be open to working with them too?" And it just kind of naturally developed that way. And as I got more into it, and I tell my dental clients this too veterinarians are awesome. Like I enjoy it. Now I was warned and I've made this joke many times. People in my industry have told me veterinarians have no money. They're broke. They have all this debt. They don't like to talk about money. They're going to be terrible clients. They're definitely wrong. I don't shout from the hilltops just because I'm like, (laughs) hey, I'm happy to work in this space because I think veterinarians as a whole are great people that if you build a relationship, and we talked about this prior to hitting record, it's a tight knit industry, right? And so it's nice when if you go about it the right way and you try to take care of people and do what you need to do the same way that a veterinarian in a community would do, you have a reputation. And so then your reputation precedes you and it opens up opportunities to build what I would call true relationships. So for me, that's been the goal. I didn't want to be the generalist and try to say, hey, if you have money, I help you. Instead of just say, I want to really know this industry and these challenges and then be able to be the person that can help with that and then grow a business around that. So that's, I guess, the quick answer from there.
1: Cool. Well, thanks for sharing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And now people learned about that. We do not have pets. so <laughs> um, Okay.
1: We don't discriminate. Yeah, <laughs> Actually makes the relationship maybe even better because you're not going to ask for unsolicited veterinary advice. Yeah, I don't. And I also don't have to be
0: like, <laughs> if anyone asks me, who's your personal veterinarian? I'm like, I don't have anyone. Right? <laughs> but I do have a newfound respect from when I was a pet owner and would go to the veterinarian. And what I've learned now and understanding life on the other side, I'm like, wow, I actually would have changed my behaviors in more than one way of like, just, oh yeah, I'm not going to buy that here. I'll buy it somewhere else or I'll go online or I'll do that. And there's just, there's so many things that I did. And I'm like, I probably wasn't a great client, really. I was okay. I wasn't mean. I never got mad, but I was like, eh, was probably just someone that wasn't the best. And I wish I would have known what I know now. (laughs) So... Anyways, as we wrap up, where can people find you? I didn't even really yeah. plug your Instagram, which is True North DVM, And we didn't necessarily get into chat and all that, but pre order the book, like where do they connect with you? How do they find the pre order for the book? And where would you send people?
1: Yeah, so TrueNorthDVM.com is my website. You can contact me through there. There's also a link to the book information. It's officially in publishing and it should be out the end of April. And at that point, it'll be available on like Amazon and the uh, Barnes and Noble as well. So keep an eye out for that. And then I'm most active on my Instagram, which is also True North DVM, and then Facebook as well under the same handle. So it's simple just Google True North DVM. <laughs> got it. We know
0: where to find you. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing the lessons learned and some of the knowledge. And we got into some areas that didn't initially expect, but it was great. And I really, really appreciate you just being able to share what you've learned because I think it's super valuable for a lot of people listening.
1: Well, thank you. And thank you for creating a platform where we can have important conversations like this.
0: Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should now be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice.